What an introduction. Welcome. Glad you're here. If you are new or newer this morning to Crown Point, you have picked the wrong week. (laughs) We're glad you're here anyway. The last time I spoke, which has been a year ago, believe it or not, uh, I preached for an hour, and I've never lived that down since that day. Pastor invited me to speak about a month ago, and he gave me some very specific guidelines. He said, 30 minutes. And I said, no way. Um, But I'll try. But yes, if you are newer this morning, you are in for a marathon. And I apologize in advance, but um, the good thing about it is when service goes really long, you you don't get that lunch rush at the restaurant. You actually get there afterwards. So I'm doing you a favor this morning, all right? Here we go. 30 minutes. Yeah, right. When I was a kid, I grew up in the St. Louis area, and uh, my family and I grew up in St. Clair, Missouri. My mom and dad are here this morning. I'm so happy to have them. Today's my birthday, by the way. Um, They're here for my birthday, and of course, because I'm speaking, and that never gets to happen, whatever. So um, we grew up in St. Clair, Missouri, which is just outside of St. Louis, and I always loved it when we traveled east of St. Louis. I liked it when we would go out of town, we'd go that direction, and every great once in a while, it didn't happen too often, but dad would actually go downtown, and we'd go across the river, and we would exit St. Louis that way. The reason why I loved it so much is because on the trip home, there's this amazing view. As you cross the Mississippi River there, where 55 and 70 and 64 and 44, all these roads come together, they cross the bridge, there... At one point, you come around this corner, and the trees and everything kind of clears, and there's the Mississippi flowing right across in front of you, and you see this amazing skyline, and then right in the middle of that skyline, there's this awesome thing which kind of brings it all together, this amazing view, this focal point, and it's the St. Louis Arch, of course. I loved it because as a kid, when we'd come around that way, I'd see the arch, it made me think of home. We could have been... However far away, it didn't matter, but I knew that when I saw that, that we were close to home. There was something that that inside of me, I knew, okay, the trip is almost over, now things are familiar, I see this, and it reminded me of something. Of course, the St. Louis Arch is not there for that purpose. A lot of us attach different feelings or memories to these, these types of things, you know, these monuments that are put in place. That's not why they're there. We do that on our own, but it serves as this little mental picture for us, this little thing in our minds which, which steers us to a certain place or a feeling. St. Louis Arch, of course, is one of my favorites because I, gl- I grew up close to home, but there are other monuments in our country. The next one that comes to mind right off the bat, anybody know what that is? Washington Monument, right. It's there to direct our minds to a certain place. And of course, that's the fact that Grover Washington Jr. was an amazing saxophone player. And they put this thing up to remind us all of that. There's another one. Another monument. What is that one? Statue of Liberty. And that's there to remind us that France is our best friend. Right? If you haven't taken the time to thank her for that, you should do that, by the way. Monuments are incredible things because we see them, and yes, like I said, we attach all these feelings or these memories to it, but it's there, it's in a place, and it's supposed to direct our minds to a certain thing. 
There's a reason why that's there, those monuments, each of them, and they serve a purpose, and yes, I'm joking around about that, but there's a monument in Scripture that, that it tells such an amazing story. And I'm talking about the book of Joshua, and the Old Testament, as the book begins, we pick up this story, and the Israelites are in this really unfamiliar place for them. They've got all these changes, all these things that are being introduced and thrown at them in the beginning of this chapter. And so the Lord starts this chapter out with a couple things that I think we can really gain from this morning. Um, The Israelites, of course, if you remember the story at this point, the beginning of the book of Joshua, they'd been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, looking around, searching for the promised land. They're about to take possession of it, and they think they know that. So they're, they're in this place where it's unfamiliar. They were happy, grumbling and complaining in Egypt, but they got taken away from there. And now they're supposed to be in the promised land, but they're wandering around searching. Joshua is their new leader. Moses is dead. All of these things that are changing for them. Lots of changes, and you can identify with them that no matter what it is in life, if change happens, it's uncomfortable because it requires us to take on something new. And even though we might have not liked the way it was before, it might be something different for us, it's hard to adapt to that because it means adopting a whole new viewpoint or becoming familiar with something else. That's the place the Israelites were in when we pick up the text. Beginning of Joshua, the first chapter. This is verses 1 through 3, 5 and 6. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place you set your foot as I promised Moses. No one will be able to stand against you all of the days of your life. As I was with Moses... So I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. I would imagine for Joshua, we we know that the people are probably uncomfortable and we see the history of that through their 40 years of wandering. But I would imagine for Joshua, he's pretty intimidated. He's following a guy that led his people, they grumbled and all that stuff. We know the story, but nonetheless, here's a guy who led his people for 40 years, who demonstrated God working through him in some amazing ways. Remember all the miracles that took place as they left Egypt? They saw Moses do all these things. And so here's Joshua at this really crazy point in life where he might have been ready for it, he might not have been, we, we don't really know, but here he is stepping up to take over. Moses is gone, it's Joshua's turn, and he's got to be nervous. Most of us can identify with that feeling. You know, we, we often look at people who appear to be confident, have everything put together, and we, we envy that so much. But the truth is, most of us, regardless of how we mask that, we don't feel that way. When it comes time to step up to a new responsibility, it makes us nervous, and we're often intimidated by that. We look at those people who seem to just walk through life with no fear, but the thing is, there's either two kinds of people that, that fit into that category. There's the ones who mask it really well. It seems like they, they've got it all together, but truthfully, they're scared, just like the rest of us. 
And then there's the others who are just completely ignorant to their own weaknesses or what the job is calling for. Those are the people who walk through life so confident that for the rest of us, who I would say are the healthy individuals, we're scared, right? We're scared because it's something new and it requires us to grow and it stretches us into something different. That's where Joshua was. And so what does the Lord do? He tells him, Joshua, I will give you every place you set your foot. No one will be able to stand against you. Joshua, here in this place, is probably not exactly jumping up and down, thinking, yes, it's my turn. And so the Lord gives him this little pep talk at the beginning of the book and says, you can do it. I will give you favor. I will give you success. And then secondly, he also promises him, I will be with you wherever you go. I will never leave you or forsake you. So he promises Joshua two things. That's the promise at the beginning of the book. Favor or success. And he promises him this gift of his presence to go with him, to strengthen him, to accompany him on this new thing in life. I remember when, um, when I was nearing the end of my teenage years, 19, I uh, started Bible school. And uh, my parents drove me to Springfield. I was starting Central Bible College. Uh, it was actually this weekend in, um, what would that be, 1999? This weekend, Labor Day weekend, 1999. And um, my parents drove me down there. They dropped me off. They had this final little chapel to kind of commission um, us as students and future ministers of the gospel. And um, I started that first weekend on my own. And it was something brand new. And uh, I, I admit I was a little scared. Uh, Mom and dad were there with me. We uh, had this little cry fest out in the parking lot. And they're like, okay, son, go ahead now. It's your turn. Um, and so I went back to my room that night, hung out with some people. And I was scared about that too, whatever. But um, we, we spent an evening. And then that night, I go to get in my bed for the first time. And I pull back the covers. And there was a little letter that my dad had written to me. And um, this letter talked about how proud that he and mom were. They said, son, you're a man now. You can do this. You're all grown up. We believe in you and we'll always be there for you. And it reminded me so much of this passage. This is one of my favorite passage, passages, and it always has been. And maybe it's because I'm a scaredy cat. But um, the Lord gives Joshua this pep talk because he knows that he needs it. And in me being in the same position, I can identify with this so much. It's like God steps alongside him and says, you know what? It's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. And I'm so thankful to have a dad that, that would do that for me as well, that would say, son, it's your turn. Grow up. Be a man. And I thought, that's right. I am a man, you know? And then I buried my face in my pillow. And thought, oh, no. Why do I feel this way? But that's not all it is, okay? It's not just this giant pep talk. You know how it goes with God. We've got to do part of this. The journey doesn't start, or it doesn't end with just this, this great, hey, you know what? I'm always there for you. Go ahead. It'll be all right. But the Lord requires something of us. As we go on in this text, the seventh verse goes on to say, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey All the law my servant Moses gave you, do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. 
Keep this book of law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I've always admired those people that seem to have this kind of Midas touch. No matter what they picked up, whether it was an instrument or a sport or just different hobbies, they could pick things up and instantly be good at them. You know that old phrase, jack of all trades, master of none, that, that saying? I, I look at those kinds of people and I'm always jealous because I wanted to just pick up anything and be great at it and not have to work. Can anybody identify with that? The work is not fun, right? Well, at several different points in my life, I wanted to play guitar. And so I would get a guitar. Dad always had one around the house. And then this even happened in college um, where, where I would be around people. And so I'd pick up a guitar and I'd, I'd think, you know, because I'm kind of musically inclined, I'd think, okay, I'm going to pick this up and it's going to sound great. I'm going to make this thing really sing. And so I'd pick it up and within 30 seconds, my fingers felt like they were going to fall off. And I sounded terrible. And I recognized really carefully or really quickly that if I was going to get good at the guitar, it was not going to happen without some work. And so finally in my life, I was, I was 28 at the time, it was actually on my birthday weekend, four years ago, I went out and I bought a guitar. And I thought, okay, obviously I'm not going to pick one up and just be great at it. So I thought, I'm going to have to really put the time in. And so for six months, while Brittany, Brittany was had a really crazy semester in college. Um, she was working way into the night. I would sit down with my guitar every night, and I'd play for a while, and, and I was terrible at it. I didn't sound good, but I was determined to try to get better at it. And so for six months, I sat there every night, and I practiced. And the next thing I knew, I could play some chords, and I could play them in a certain order where it sounded like a song, and then before I knew it, that song turned into a couple of songs, and that's probably just because all worship songs are pretty much the same. Um, so if you want to learn guitar, go for it. Um, six months turned into a year, though, before I knew it, and I was still playing all the time. I had worked really hard, spent all this time, and the next thing I knew, I was, I was a guitar player. And then that year had passed, and here I am four years later, and I don't, I don't even think about it anymore because I spent all that time practicing and preparing. And a lot of times when I commit to something like that, there's this saying that a, a friend of mine used to, to use all the time. She's a former staff member at, at the church where we served in Springfield, and she would coach our fine arts students there and um, just had a really good grasp on, on life in general, I always thought, and looked up to her so much. But this person would coach our students all year long there in short sermons and different things like that. And, and I admired the fact that she would tell them at the end of every session together, just remember, the process is the prize. Here we are, it's September, it's October. You've got, you've got the rest of this year and all the way until next summer before you do this. But the process is the prize because for you, if you arrive next summer, you know, at a national competition and, and you get a rating that doesn't put you in the top 10 or in the top five or you're not the winner, it doesn't matter. As long as you've worked hard this year and you have improved your skills, 
then you've achieved something that you can be proud of because this whole process throughout this next year, this is the prize for you. That philosophy is incredible until, of course, the 16-hour bus ride sitting next to the kid that won three trophies and it's like, ah, this is terrible. Where's my trophy? Ha, ha, ha. Really expected a bigger laugh on that one. (laughs) Maybe you guys have been in that seat next to that kid. Well, that's not the only thing that I've worked at in my life. At, at one point, and I've, I've probably told many of you that um, I aspired to be a really good basketball player, and the genetics kind of worked against me in that, in that uh, regard. So I played in high school and junior high all the time. Finally, by the time I got to college, I realized it just wasn't going to happen. I could shoot the ball, but I wasn't as fast, I couldn't jump as high, I couldn't do all these things that everybody else could, so I thought, hey, I can at least be fit. And so I worked really hard to be fit in college and um, spent lots and lots of time in the gym. Three days turned into five days, turned into six days, turned into hour after hour, and I thought, I can be really buff. I can be one of these guys that just looks amazing. And actually, I think we have a picture of it this morning. Um... (laughs) That kind of stuff does not happen overnight, okay? You have to work really hard to get there. And um, there was a time in my life when I worked hard to achieve those kinds of results. And Joshua, back to the text, Joshua can identify with that as well. Yes, he's going to step up and and the Lord is going to enable him to lead these people, but it's not going to be without work. The Lord says, obey my law, meditate on it day and night. May it always be on your lips, so then you will be successful. Verse 10 goes on to say this, So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. The Lord gave Joshua a promise, and he called him to preparation. He called Joshua to preparation with these things. Verse 12 says, But the Reubenites and the Gadites and half the tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you after he said, The Lord your God will will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives and your children and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan. But all the fighting men, ready for battle must cross over ahead of the fellow Israelites. You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land the Lord is giving to them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, your servant uh, of the Lord, gave east of the Jordan toward the sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, Whatever you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only the Lord your God will be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you command them will be put to death. Be strong and courageous. Joshua 3. Early in the morning, Joshua and the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and the the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from the positions and follow it. 
then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before, but keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go, do not go near it. Then verse 5 says this, Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Let me read that verse again. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. That word consecrate is a word that we almost always just use in church. You probably don't hang out with your buddies or your gal pals and say, hey, let's consecrate these next few moments. Right? It's in church that we use that. And it literally means make or declare something as sacred. Dedicate formally to a religious or divine purpose. And so Joshua gives them this command, just as God had communicated to him, prepare yourselves, consecrate yourselves, because tomorrow I'm going to do amazing things. He didn't say, I'm going to start doing this stuff, and then you jump in line and, and, and just see what happens. No, he says, consecrate yourselves, make yourself holy, prepare yourself, get yourself ready because I am going to do something amazing. Imagine for us, if we could adopt that kind of philosophy or mentality for our lives, that that we would walk around expecting God to do amazing things in our lives. And in order to see that, To take hold of what God really wants to do, we would make sure that at all times we are consecrated, that our lives are ready to go, that we are holy, that we are set apart, that we are ready for the work of the Lord. The thing is, it's so difficult. Just like it's difficult to adopt change in our lives, to take on something new, it's really, really difficult to wait for God, to wait and to prepare ourselves. We do not live in a patient culture, and you know that. How many times have you heard the phrase, uh, the internet is so slow today, right? It took two and a half seconds to load that last page. I cannot believe how slow this is. Or standing in line at the grocery store. Man, there's so many people up here. They really need to open another checkout aisle. I bet this is going to take me three extra minutes. Or... Sorry, I would have been here sooner, but I got caught at every light. Okay, these little kinds of hang-ups, they, they just, they scream at us because we are not patient people. We often want to jump in and just act on something, do the work, and then see, okay, God, did you, did, did, did you like that? Were you a part of that process? Was that cool? We want to just go in and get the work done, not have to worry about the preparation because we are just a part of our culture. But that's not the way the Lord operates. He tells the Israelites and he's telling us today to get ourselves ready, to prepare our own hearts, to work on the things that are inside of us. And once that work is accomplished and he is ready then to use us, His will be done. Amen? The message that he sends the Israelites, I think, is so important for us today. That promise, favor, success. My presence will be with you. But you need to prepare. You need to be ready. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow I will do amazing things among you. 
What if the Lord's speaking that to you this morning? I hope that's resonating in your heart. The third thing that we see, which is such an exciting portion of Scripture, is the provision. And I apologize, there's so much Scripture this morning, but I think that this story is so well told that it's important that we just read it. The 13th verse of the third chapter says, And as soon as the priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. Okay, again, these Israelites are waiting to cross the Jordan River. All of these things happen that, that we kind of skipped over, and, and this is about three days after that initial stuff. But the Lord tells them, once their feet hit the ground, they will stand, the waters will stand still. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priest who carried the Ark of the Lord reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water's edge. The water from upstream stopped flowing. The priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stepped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Let's not forget, okay, this is the second time for for many of these people that they are seeing something like this. Forty years prior on their way out of Egypt, Moses is in charge. Remember what happened at the Red Sea? He parted the Red Sea. Okay, and here they are going to take possession of the promised land, And the Lord, once again, doesn't part the waters this time because it's a river, but causes the waters to stop flowing. And actually, in the text, it talks about where this was happening. And it's a a, a portion of, of, of land that's about 16 miles upstream from where they were actually stepping into those waters. So even though the waters might have stopped flowing as soon as their feet touched the edge, like the scripture says, probably took a little while for 16 miles of water to work its way past them, right? Imagine as they were standing there waiting, the anxious and nervous feelings that they were having. Okay, God, you said it. When's it going to happen? The fifth verse of of, um, chapter 4 says this, Go over before the ark of the Lord. We know that it actually did happen. They crossed on dry ground. Go over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder. And he's talking about these 12 individuals that he appointed from each tribe at this point. These stones are to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it, cro- when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. A memorial. Okay, just like the arch or the Washington Monument or today the Statue of Liberty. Just like those things trigger memories in our minds Because we see them and we think of one thing, but we know that truthfully, when we see the arch, we're supposed to think, yes, we moved west eventually. Sorry, we moved west eventually. We're supposed to think of a certain meaning. They're there to trigger our thoughts. And this 
you know, I don't know how big these stones were. They had to, had to be on a shoulder, so they couldn't be just giant stones, unless these guys look like my picture earlier. But there were 12 of them, and they were piled up. There probably weren't a whole lot to look at. But here's this physical sign for these people to see and remember God's provision for them. A memorial of what God had done. Days before the promise came. And even years before that, of course. But to Joshua, this promise came, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And wherever you go, you will be successful. And then it happens and God says, now set up some stones. We often forget, don't we? We often forget about so many things and we need these little reminders in our phones and from, from other people. We've, we've got to have these little reminders in place to keep our minds on track. And regardless of how amazing the miracles that, that these people witnessed were, their minds eventually just kind of forgot about the emotions of that moment. They forgot about the significance of these events. And so God told them, take up these stones so that even when your children's children pass by them, you can say, the Lord provided. And here we are now in this promised land because of what God did. It's so appropriate this morning that we had communion. Because communion is just another one of those physical signs so that we can never forget what Christ did in our lives. This morning, I want us to remember those details of this promise that that God gave to Joshua. I want us to remember these three things that, that are pointed out in this passage. That God has promised favor for his people. He's promised that they would be successful. And he's promised that his presence would always be with them. Those are the promises that were given to the Israelites. But... In order to really take hold of those things, he said, you've got to do the work. You've got to be ready and you've got to prepare yourselves. Consecrate yourself for tomorrow I will do amazing things among you. And then, of course, the third thing is that God is faithful. Amen? God is faithful and he really did it. We serve an amazing, amazing God. And even though these promises and these things were spoken specifically to his people so many years ago, we can learn so much about God, about who he is and how he loves us and how he treats us by reading about how he treated his people in that time. I don't think that the Lord is saying to you this morning, anywhere you put your foot, it's going to become yours. You're going to be successful in everything you say and do, everything you try. You're always going to be great. That's not what God is saying to us. But he's promising us this morning that he will never leave us or forsake us. That he is a faithful God. He loves us and his desire is that we would be successful this morning. Would you stand with me today? We're going to close, and as we do, I want us to bow our heads and just kind of commit this morning to him. Father, we are so grateful for your love. We're so grateful for your promise.